Hello and welcome to episode 60 of the Gamers Tavern. This week we have guest Mike Pondsmith on to talk about his career in gaming from cyberpunk to mechton to anime and much, much more. And please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gamers tavern. Without further ado, grab a drink from the bar and take a seat at the table in the corner and we'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Are you looking for a new game to play? DriveThruRPG is the internet's largest source of role-playing games. Enjoy our game table episodes with Shadowland, Dungeons & Dragons, or Mutants & Masterminds, and you want to join in? Or is World of Darkness, Battletech, or Fate more your thing? Or maybe you just want to check out games from our guests like The Cursed and Shintar, the Savage World settings. Just go to GamersTavern.org slash DriveThruRPG and you can have a new game to play in minutes. And they also have the largest selection of free games, source books, and starter sets anywhere in the world. Go to GamersTavern.org slash DriveThruRPG and support the show with every purchase. Welcome to a special episode of the Gamers Tavern Podcast. I'm your host, Ross Watson. And I'm Daryl Mock. And tonight we have with us an extremely awesome gentleman. Uh, you will learn all about why I think he's awesome very shortly. Uh, he is an Origins Awards Hall of Fame game designer. He teaches game design professionally. He's made a ton of games you've probably played. His name is Mike Pondsmith. Hey, do I know this guy? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the show, Mike. Hey, glad to have you. Uh, so the thing is, Mike, we, for our listeners, we want you to kind of tell us a little bit about who you are and what they might know you from. And the way we do this on our show is we do it through the format of a gaming character sheet. So if I say, what is your gaming character sheet? What would your answer be? Well, I guess I probably should use a cyberpunk gaming character sheet. So in that case, I would suspect I'm probably a rocker boy. Ooh, <laughs> I tell stories and get people in trouble. <laughs> Uh, let's see. Do we have to go through my stats? Uh, you know, you, however you want to do, it's fine. You know? Oh, okay. Well, uh, we're going to be going through cyberpunk then average is about six. So I'd say in probably around six. Um, <laughs> Dex is actually fairly good. So I'd say it's actually seven or eight, uh, reflexes seven or eight. If you use a martial arts caught up to that one. Uh, let's see. Cool. Hmm. I didn't look at it as six. People say it's somewhere between six and eight. I have no <laughs> idea. I suppose, as my old drama teacher used to say, meaning is in the audience, right? Cool is a great stat, by the way. I love the fact that it's called cool. Yeah, I'm a great believer in calling things what they ought to be, so we simplify things down the way. Hmm. Now, now, one thing about uh, your gaming character sheet would be through the interlock system, most likely. Yeah, actually, it'd be through Fusion now. Ah, but those start with a very special mechanic called a life path. Bingo. And your life path as a game designer probably starts in 1982. Is that right? Mm, yeah, I guess probably more like 80. I've been using since about then. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And that's when you basically decided you wanted to write for role playing games. Actually, writing for role playing games snuck up on me. What happened was um, I was going to be a graphic designer studying graphic design, and was actually running uh, what's called a job shop, a uh, typography shop for the University of California at Santa Cruz. And uh, 
basically, I came up with a game, decided to muck about with it. It was easy to typeset because I had a typesetting shop. And uh, so I went to a convention for the heck of it. And I decided, yeah, as long as I'm here, I'll try to run this game. It was a game called Mekton, Giant Robots. had been done before. And I thought, yeah, we'll see if anybody likes it. It was weird because the first day I had about four people on the table. I thought, wow, four people. This is great. <laughs> yeah, and he didn't throw me out. <laughs> and I came back the next day and I figured I'd get another four people. I had 40 people around the table all saying, so <laughs> we heard you had this giant robot game. And I went, ah, okay, yeah. And I'm going, so you're going to actually publish it? And I'm going, hey, uh, so it's already typeset. You can just put it out. Uh, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> so it snuck up on me. Well, that's awesome. And just for the listeners, for a few highlights of your character sheet and your life path, uh, we're talking about Mechton, Castle Falkenstein, or Falkenstein. How do you pronounce it? Falkenstein. Falkenstein. Okay. Uh, Mechton Zeta, Cyberpunk 2020, Cyber Generation, Teenagers from Outer Space, the Fusion System, which includes Champions of New Millennium, Bubblegum Crisis, several more. Uh, and a ton of video games, uh, stuff you've probably, stuff I certainly played. Uh, I, I hope our listeners probably played Mech Commander 2, Crimson Skies, uh, and a little game called The Matrix Online, a few other things. Uh, am I leaving anything out? I think that's about most of it. Also, Flight Simulator and Combat Flight Sim. Okay. There you go. That's the, I didn't know about those. Uh, you were, uh, and for, again, for the listeners, just one last thing on his, uh, his life path. We, we, he checks off the box, uh, called, President of Gamma. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, uh, so that's your gaming character sheet. Is there anything else you want to say about that for the listeners about who you are and what they might know you from? Uh, still have not been arrested yet, but <laughs> <laughs> as long as I keep moving and changing my address, they haven't caught up to me. Okay. Um, well, considering what happened with Steve Jackson games back in the eighties, I don't know if that's something we want, want to t- joke oh. about too much. <laughs> I figure they probably are monitoring all my phones by now. You know, that's an interesting question because, you know, we had an episode all about cyberpunk as a genre. Mm-hmm. And in that episode, we talked about the infamous uh, Secret Service seizure of Steve Jackson's GURPS cyberpunk. Right. Did you ever have to deal with anything regarding the feds uh, in, in your game? As far as I know, not. Part of it is, uh, unfortunately, one of the problems that Steve had was that one of his people who was working for him at the time was actually hooked up with the Legion of Doom. Uh, his name, uh, his uh, hacker name was Mentor. Well, I think I think we should probably segue into our next segment of our show. This okay. is where, where we talk about what we've been playing lately. And I want to start with uh, with my my co-host, Daryl. Uh, Daryl, what have you been, what have you been playing lately, buddy? Well, I've had a lot going on, so I haven't had much time to do any gaming, unfortunately, but I did manage to try out a new board game that I, uh, was sent from Fireside Games. Uh, they're the ones who do the Castle Panic games. It's yep. called Here Kitty Kitty, a crazy <laughs> cat collecting game <laughs> where oh, yes. each player plays a crazy cat lady and you are trying to lure the neighborhood cats into your house. Nice. And steal cats from your neighbors. And it comes with like like 30 different little minis for cats. It's awesome. It's kind of interesting because uh, one of my son's friends is pulling a variation of that right now. And she keeps coming over and waving her list of cats that she's gotten. <laughs> Anything else, Daryl? That's the only thing I've had a chance to do. I've, I've, been, I've actually got kind of sucked up into wrestling again over the weekend. Ooh, because Re- we- WrestleMania, right? Ooh, nice. uh, yes, WrestleMania. 
Did you see the uh, the the new day? They all showed up in uh, Dragon Ball Z costumes. And yes. Did you see Did you see Team Four Star in the audience during their intro, holding up their logo on as a sign? <laughs> yep. The guys that do Dragon Ball Z abridged were in the crowd, and they were on camera right as they were coming out in their DBZ uniforms. That's awesome. It, it is awesome. In fact, I actually saved a uh, file on that when I saw it. That's brilliant. Me too. Man. I, I was the first one to tweet them about it too. So. Okay. Well, you left out in the games for gaming uh, characters. You left out Dragon Ball Z, one of my favorite to work on. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. Well, that's that's one uh, I I had not not put on the list. So yeah. Mike Pondsmith also worked on Dragon Ball Z. So let's talk to you, Mike. What have you been playing lately? Uh, right now, I'm playing in a number of weird campaigns. Uh, most of them are tabletop RPGs. Uh, I'm in two different Pathfinder campaigns, an occasional D and D campaign. Uh, my wife is running Amber, wow. which is really interesting. Um, and then I've been running an off and on again, Mekton game. Um, also, I'm running an occasional um, Mac. Actually, I would call it Mekton Macross. It's Macross done in the Mekton system. Woo! Yeah. I'm yeah, salivating. I would, <laughs> I, would love, I would love so much to, to actually do that, but... Uh, unfortunately, Kev Zimby had to beat me out on it, so <laughs> I, I have to hand it over to him. But he came up with some great source material, too. So that and then uh, the current one I was talked into by my son's girlfriend. I'm doing a Firefly campaign. Wow. Man, you were doing a ton of gaming. <laughs> <laughs> Around here, we, we're usually doing about one game every other night, so okay. it kind of adds up. Okay, I'm super jealous of you right now. However, I have no time to do any video game stuff at all. I'm holding my breath and I'm waiting for No Man's Sky. And then I'm going to just cease to do anything else but play it for the next like two years. <laughs> I hear that, man. Uh, as for myself, I am playing in a Dungeons and Dragons campaign, 5th edition, and we just ran away from Demogorgon. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> a the, smart move. Out of the Abyss uh, adventure. Daryl, you're familiar with this, right? Uh, I think it's the only one I don't have now. Uh, well, it takes place all in the Underdark. It's pretty awesome. Uh, we're, we're, we just ran away from, uh, from Demogorgon and our, our, thanks to the new DMs Guild thing, our, our DM has downloaded some additional free content. Well, not free. It's pay what you want, I think he said. But there's a- additional content that's been generated for this campaign that you can get off of the DMs Guild, uh, where basically other entrepreneurs and other, you know, game writers, aspiring game designers and game writers can't upload their own stuff and, and sell it on this, uh, through this initiative called DMs Guild. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like that. Yeah, it's it's actually really cool. We just we basically found an underdark hippie village <laughs> with uh like it, it was pretty bizarre. There's Dwergar riding carrying crawlers, herding fire beetles like a like ranchers. It's 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 crazy. But cool. <laughs> really cool. Um on top of that, of course, uh Drag- uh, see, uh Baldur's Gate, uh Siege of Dragon Spear Castle just dropped. And I've been playing through that. Uh it's kind of absorbed me a little bit actually. <laughs> And uh, a game that I wrote, uh, which is Battlefleet Gothic Armada, is coming up on Steam in just a few weeks. We're recording this April 5th, so it should be out in um, two weeks from now. So is this based on the old Battlefleet Gothic? Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. I used to play that all the time. Yeah, me too, man. <laughs> and uh, I just got lucky to be able to write the uh, the dialogue and story for it. So we're wow. pretty excited about that one. Um, and that's it for me. So let's move on to one of my favorite segments, Tavern Tales. And this is where we ask our guest, Mike Pondsmith, to give us a memorable die roll from a game. It can be any game that that you have played, worked on, or just doesn't matter. Give us a, a story of a memorable die roll. 
I think the most memorable die roll, and I think probably everybody was there would agree, is actually a card flip from Castle Falkenstein. Oh. Um, this, this was a wonderful scenario. Okay. Castle is interesting because, because you have these cards, but the cards allow you to kind of hold your die roll for the right moment when you want something to come out. Mm-hmm a certain outcome. And it's one of the things I really loved about developing that system was instead of just, yeah, it was good, bad, you can go, yeah, this is going to be the moment. So imagine a scenario. We had a uh, one of the people in our crew, female, um, and she was playing a character. As I recall, she was an adventurous. And opposite of her, one of the other people at our crew, um, male, uh, who was playing a master thief. Okay. And sometime a Sudate agent. And in real life, they had been kind of floating around each other, but nothing had actually happened. Although all of us are all sitting around going, yeah, we'll ship that. But it turned out that they both hung on to large scale hearts cars. Now in Castle Falkenstein, hearts cars represent emotion, love, and so forth like that. And they hung on to the ace of hearts. And the King of Hearts, actually the Queen of Hearts and the King of Hearts, respectively. Mm -hmm. And they hung on to them for like three games until it got to one moment when they were alone. Death had just stared them in the face. They had just escaped from the Hall of Mirrors in the Praetor in Vienna in the middle of the night. And they turned to each other and he decided to declare his character's love for the other character and pulled out the King of Hearts. And she answered with, the queen of hearts huh. and everybody at the table went insane. <laughs> okay. It was sort of like gaming inception. Nice. <laughs> I like it. Okay. Um, well, I want to get this show started and I'm going to get this out of the way really early on. Uh, Mike, I am probably one of your biggest fans of all time. <laughs> oh. uh, I, I have a list of top game designers. Okay. And, and it goes basically like this in the top, there's no like particular order, but there's there's Mike Pondsmith, there's Jordan Wiseman, there's Greg Kostikian, right? There's these really amazing game designers, and you're you're one of the, of those guys to me. Like I am, like, I am honored that you put me in that company because that's pretty damn scary company. <laughs> well, you've created, uh, and I want to get into like we'll talk about all this stuff about how it's inspired people and and and, and so forth, but. Uh, it's important that the listeners know that you're not just like some other game designer from the from the 80s that they need to understand. You're an, you're Origins Award Hall of Fame winner, right? You've uh, you you actually foresaw you were a visionary. You foresaw some trends in our culture like steampunk and anime and cyberpunk, like, like genres coming down the pipe. You actually knew those were coming before anybody else did. It seemed like that to me. It's actually kind of funny is I joke that it's a little like being kind of a mediocre surfer and you're paddling along on a really one of a kind wave at Mavericks and you look up behind you, there are guys like Corky Carroll or something who are starting to paddle on along to you and you're thinking, but I'm on the wave. I'd better really use this wave because <laughs> the best surfers are right behind me. And the guys you're talking about are really darn good surfers. <laughs> Well, you, you've also, you know, you've created game designs that go from very traditional stuff to some really, uh, narrativist, uh, stuff like, like, like Castle, for example, is, is uh, almost an indie game, really, in the way it's designed. Uh, mm-hmm. so I, like I said, again, you have a very, you have a very broad, uh, palette of your own. And this is what leads me to point out to the listeners. Mike actually teaches game design 
at the well, gym. I'm not I'm not teaching right now. Oh, okay, but uh, he did teach. Yeah, the, I did teach for a couple of years at the Digipen Institute of Technology, right in Redmond, I, Seattle. In Redmond, yes. Yeah. But I ended up actually leaving um, for one reason. Um, I ended up getting back into video game design, and my current project is being done with a group called CDPR. Oh yeah, CD Project Red. Yep. And they came to me about the time I was still at DP Digipen and said. Hello, you don't know who we are, but we're in Poland <laughs> and we want to do a cyberpunk game. And I said, okay, really? Somebody in Poland knows cyberpunk. And my wife reminded me, oh, yeah, you know, we actually license it over there. And it's a Polish edition. And basically, I went over. And as many of your listeners may know, CDPR is a crew that did Witcher, Witcher 2, and Witcher 3, yeah, which can- has won more awards than I can possibly imagine. It's considered one of the best video game role-playing games of all time. So we went over there and, you know, I've been working in video game design for the last 10 years. And I said, "Mm, well, you know, how good can it be? They're in Poland. And I went over and I saw their stuff and I went, oh my God, this is amazing stuff. (laughs) And we want to talk about that, but we want to save that till the end just because that's a, that's the most coolest thing. However, (laughs) the trick is, the trick is that, you know, you can't continue teaching or doing anything like that. Uh, when you're flying over to Poland two or three times a year. Yeah, I, I, no doubt. No doubt. So um, you also own your own company, mm-hmm. which is called Art Halsorian, right? Yep. Now, can you tell us where the, the name of that company comes from? <laughs> okay. Um, first of all, uh, many, 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 many years ago, Warren Spector and I were sitting side by side each other at a small convention in California. He worked for Steve Jackson at the time. And I was asking, what should we call the company that I'm trying to put together? And he said, whatever you do, don't name it after yourself. <laughs> Steve Jackson Games. And I was thinking, uh, no one's going to want to listen to Mike Ponsman Games anyway. So we thought about it and we ended up naming it after investor in the company. And the investor was a middle-aged raisin farmer huh. in the valley who needed to lose some money. And his son, who was a gamer in my group, talked him into it. And we were supposed to lose money, and somehow we didn't lose money. We made a lot of money that year, which totally honked off my friend's father. But we named the company after him because we said, there's no chance that Ross is ever going to show up at a convention. So it's perfect. You know, Ross Telsorian Games, our Telsorian. Wow. Okay. So he's got my name. That's cool. I like Ross or Telsorian? Ross, Ross. My name is also Ross. Ah, so right. so yeah, that that's super cool. So the origins of Artosorian Games is the same origin as the film The Producers. Yeah, when you think about it, <laughs> <laughs> the, the amusing part was at the time we figured it'd be like FASA, which is nobody ever remembers. You know what it means? You know, Fredonian Aerospace Administration. Wow. Yeah, that's yeah. that's that's amazing. Or or TSR Tactical Studies Research. So we figured Artosori, nobody can pronounce it. So it's going to be RTG. <laughs> we were under that idea of the RTG forever. No one would ever, ever care about what it actually meant. Boy, I was surprised. Now, I want to get into the the long list of games that you've created for Tabletop. Uh, but before I do that, I want to ask you a serious question because uh, our industry has been struggling with a long overdue conversation about diversity in gaming. And that conversation is starting to get heard around the industry. But I wanted to hear what your thoughts are on it. Well, it's an interesting problem because if I look at it from my own personal life situation, I've never really had any 
problems. I found the paper game industry was phenomenally welcoming. From the start, when I started doing stuff, people came up to me, told me how they did things, suggestions on how to get things done, uh, where to go, who to contact. And it's been sort of like a family, in fact. So I directly haven't really encountered any particular problems. But I also know that when I started, I fell in with a pretty tough crowd. You know, we were dealing with TSR guys and the Champions crew and... So, you know, I had some good company to kind of watch my back. I can't really speak for anybody else. Um, I also know there's a problem with diversity in terms of, you know, women in gaming as well, which yeah, that's the part stuff of the I've read, part of it, you know, the things I've read are absolutely horrific. But oddly enough, I was talking to my wife this afternoon about it, and she was saying, yeah, I really haven't encountered much either. But, you know, my wife's 5'9", knows several martial arts and has a voice almost <laughs> as deep as mine. So, <laughs> you know, she said, I always wonder whether anyone didn't take me seriously. I said, you kidding? Half of them are afraid of you. <laughs> <laughs> and it says something that my wife is one of the more lethal cyberpunk players I know. Well, I think it's fair to say that your games have always had a very good range of diversity. Oh, uh, yeah. They, they, they demonstrate, well, particularly, I would say, particularly Mechton is very good at uh, you know, showing women kicking ass just as much as men. Oh, yeah. You know, because stuff that's, like that. That's the genre. And yeah. I mean, I, I've never really stopped and thought, yeah, it should be a woman or it should be a man. I'm going, okay, what fits the character of the situation the best? And it's kind of interesting because, um, the current game group, for example, that I run with now, I'd say two thirds of the players are young women in their early twenties and they're they're not like lightweight players. These are hardcore, serious, tactical players. Mm-hmm. And it fascinates me that somebody would ever get in a woman's face for playing. <laughs> you know, I'm like, what? These are people you want on your side when you're going into the dungeon or into the street gangs group or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, if someone can play, you want them there. You want them there to back you up. Well, let's, uh, I think that's a great statement and I, I totally believe that. Um, and we really appreciate you sharing your, your thoughts on that because, you know, you're not only a very influential guy, you know, you have been in the industry quite a while and it's, a, you know, you have a great perspective on this kind of thing. But let's, let's, uh, switch gears a little bit because I do want to get into for the listeners, the games you've been involved in because your career stretches back at this point over 30 years. It's 36 years. You, yeah. If you started in 1980, it's 36 years. Well, it goes, it goes all the way back to when I worked at a game company, video game company, actually. My first job out of college called California Pacific. Uh-huh. And, um, it was me, a bunch of people, and one of them was Richard Gary, out of all people. Oh, I've heard that name. <laughs> I've heard that name. Yeah, it's, it's really funny because, you know, years and years and years later, I'll run into Richard at like GDC and they'll go, Mike, Richard. And everyone's going, <laughs> How do they know each other? (laughs) Simple. We were both 17-year-old idiots at the time trying to put out games. I'm still impressed as hell. He wrote an entire role-playing game in BASIC. Yeah. I couldn't even get Hello World to work in BASIC, for God's sakes. I I wrote games in BASIC as well, but I never actually had any of mine published because I didn't get the graphic routines down as well as he did. But now, your first game, you said, was Mechton. Is that right? Yeah. And this, of course is influenced by the anime that was coming out at the time. We're talking about Gundam, right? Right. And anything else? I mean, you want to talk about any other influences? At Uh, at that point, a little bit of what we would call Star Blazers, but used to be Space Battleship Yamato. Right. Which was um, popular at that point among a really small 
group of people at that point. And the other influence would be Voltron. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The interesting part on Mechton was I saw the Voltron stuff and then I was in a bookstore in Santa Cruz and somebody had gotten rid of a bunch of Gundam anime books, which essentially are cells from the individual shows with some captions underneath each one of them telling what was going on. I don't read Japanese. <laughs> gotten better. My son reads it, but you know. I'm looking at it, I'm going, I have no idea exactly what's going on, but we have giant robots kicking butt. This is cool. So I wrote Mekton kind of as a blind state of what I saw visually and what I thought should be going on combined with what translation we could put together at the time. And I was really glad to find I actually got pretty darn close to what was going on. Now, I think... You know, before Mechton, though, right? I'm reading off your Wikipedia page here. It says in 1977 you worked on a thing for Traveler. You, you basically rewrote Traveler. According oh, oh to this. That, that, well, yeah, the Wikipedia page. Sometimes I have no idea. <laughs> it's, I it's go talking, on there every so often to go. What I did that? It's talking about a thing called Imperial Stars. I was talking. Oh, about. oh, I started actually pre-Mechton. Right. And it uses many of the same systems that are in Interlock. Um, yeah, that's a right joke. What happened was I played D&D way, way back in the day when it was still the, the white box. Right. And in fact, I met my wife, Lisa, uh, because she was in a D&D game. And her awesome. roommates, her roommates, one of them was one of my best friends. And they kept saying, you should meet Mike because he <laughs> plays D&D. And <laughs> she had met me before and was not impressed. Oh, <laughs> uh, lordy. At any rate, so basically, I, I play fantasy, but a lot of it doesn't interest me. And part of it is that you know, many of the tropes are kind of beaten to death. They're done over and over and over again. Evil guy is taking over the land, save prince or princess, you know, get wizard, whatever. So I was waiting, and then Black Box Traveler came out. And I was in my local very, very small hobby store, which had a tiny little section for RPGs. I saw Black Box Traveler, and I went, oh, yes, this is what I've been waiting for. And I got it home. And I opened it up and I started building characters and going through it and having a great time. And then I had a fight and I realized I couldn't kill someone because the original traveler had a mechanic that you had to knock three stats down and you had to be phenomenally lucky to actually take somebody out. And so I went, Oh, that didn't work. And I went back, tried it again. All right. Rewrite this rule. Went back, tried it again, rewrote this rule. And eventually I'd written a game called I Star, Imperial Star, mm -hmm. which is essentially my traveler game. <laughs> and one of the both silliest and proudest moments I have is years later, I finally got to meet Mark Miller. Because Traveler, except for that one ball like in the beginning, is an awesome game. Yeah, it is. And I finally met Mark. I finally met Mark and I said, I just want to tell you, Mr. Miller, that I want to thank you because you're probably the reason I became a game designer. Because when I took Traveler home, I found I couldn't kill someone. And I had he said, he finished the sentence. He said you found in first edition you couldn't kill someone. <laughs> and he said, yeah, I fixed that in the next edition. And, nice. and he handed me a copy of The New Traveler, which I still have like in a place of pride on my shelf. And he signed it and he said, here, this will fix it. You know, we, we plan to do a sci-fi uh, genre game, uh, genre episode, and I'm trying to get Mark Miller on the show. Oh, because he's wonderful. 
Because the thing is, and I think you'd agree with me, is that one of the things about that black box traveler that just nails it is that uh, free trader Beowulf call, you know, uh, distress call right there on the cover. Well, you do realize the first edition of Cyberpunk is an homage to that. Right, of course. Yeah, it's the first the black and white and red combination. And the Johnny Silverhand quote was an homage to Traveler. I, I, I that. love that quote, by the way. Chipping in. I'm chipping in. I'm chipping in. Oh, yeah. God. <laughs> no, I loved, I loved that. And I love Traveler. And, you know, right now, my Firefly game is kind of a weird fusion between Firefly and Traveler, as a matter of fact. Well, since we're on the topic of Mechton, I think we're just going to mm-hmm. follow this a little bit. I mean, I know it's, we're kind of, we're kind of rambling a bit, but, uh, so Mechton, uh, comes from, you know, Gundam and, and, and as you say, Voltron Notley and some other things. And you basically had, according, you know, getting from your Wikipedia page, so you says here you had some manga and you were basically just going off the imagery. Yeah. That's, that's what I was describing earlier. They were manga, um, they're called show manga or something like that. I can't think of the exact term right now, but they're basically, they take cell frames out of the show and then they caption them. And I was working, I was working from that. Okay. So it was imagery entirely and a little bit from Voltron of, you know, what certain tropes meant, certain ideas meant. And after I did Mekton, the first edition, I got in touch with some, made some friends over in Japan and we got actual shows. And what was amusing was I was sending them copies of Dukes of Hazard. <laughs> oh, well, Charlie's Angels. I oh think my it was. God. <laughs> so I'm sending them tapes of Dukes of Hazard. And they go, Oh, Dukes of Hazard. And I'm thinking, Oh man, you know, I'm so embarrassed here. <laughs> wow. It's a culture clash. <laughs> I know. So I'm going, Oh Lord. And wow. while they're sending me over Gundam and they're sending me over Lasner and sending me all this stuff. And I'm going, I'm getting all this awesomeness and I'm sending you this trash. I am so <laughs> I had a deal with a guy in London doing the same thing. He would send me Red Dwarf and I would send him Friends. Wow. Because <laughs> it took them like like nine months before they got the new season or something. Oh, there's there's another one like that. When we get our got our covers for Mekton, Zeta, and Zeta Plus, uh, they were done by one of the designers for Gundam. And he didn't want to get money from us. He basically wanted to get paid in Nightmare Before Christmas. Wow. <laughs> He and his wife were nuts about it, and we had tons of it. So we ended up sending him this massive package of nightmare stuff, and he sent us these just two gorgeous covers. Yeah, and th- you know, at least you're giving him good culture now, right? <laughs> nightmare, yeah, awesome. So I, I got to ask, Daryl, have you ever how, how familiar are you with Mechton as a role playing game? Uh, pretty much just what we've covered on previous episodes of the show. Honestly, it's uh, one of the games that always it was either before my time, and I was doing battle tech for my big giant robot stuff. So Mekton, I kind of missed that one, I think. So it's so. 1982-ish, and I'm in a game store looking at D&D stuff. And there's this book called Mekton, and I flip it open, and I flip it open to the rules for a car that turns into a robot. Yes. And I'm thinking to myself, this is awesome. This is just like Optimus Prime. And this game tells me how I can build the Transformers. So I, I got into Mechtop because it, it showed me how to do Transformers. Now, like the adult me can look back at that and see some other influences. It can see like the Garlands from Megazone 23 in there, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the Cyclones from uh, uh, Mos Beta and stuff like Mos that. Beta, yeah. 
But uh, the kid in me was like, it's Transformers. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the weird part was I did not, as a kid, watch Transformers. And in fact, I, I had a long running thing with a fan who was convinced I'd gotten all the ideas from Transformers. I'm going, I hadn't watched it. Uh, what I originally saw was things like Must Be It and so forth. But actually, there was a show the 30s called. When, when yeah. Transformers came I was going to say Transformers yeah. was like 83, 84, something like <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, basically, um, turned around on that. And what I got a lot of it from was a show called Galvian. Ooh, I'm not um, familiar with that one. Road Chaser, Road Attack Chaser Galvian, where they had basically transforming cars that ran around in a city fighting other guys in transforming cars. The cars were huge. They had huge weapons. It was really cool. So here I am, and I'm looking at Galvian, and I'm kind of fitting that in because one of the ideas of Mechtom was that you could play almost any mecha show that you saw. And the reason for that was at the time, anime was still relatively new. And we were kind of acting as a gateway yes. to show a lot of people Absolutely. that this was out there, you know. So they would see a show and they go, wow, what if I can do that? They go over and do that thing. So Battletech operated within its own universe, but we tended to operate in this larger meta universe of anything you want, you can do it here. Right. Now, what's funny is that several years later, I was on what I call the absolute worst vacation of my life. We went up to Seattle. And we were taking a break that I badly, badly need. I've been working just way too hard. And I promptly got the flu and my wife had a kidney infection. We were both bedridden in our hotel. Okay. So I staggered down with her prescription for her kidney infection stuff to the local Bartels, which is a drugstore we have around here. Mm -hmm. And I'm in there and I see these little tiny plastic cars that transform the robot. And I'm going... Wow, that's great. I can use these in Mecton. <laughs> and I took them back and I had bought Transformers. I had no idea. like, Transformers, okay, what's that? And this is amusing because I now have an insanely huge Transformers collection. In fact, within six feet of me, I must have about 40 Transformers on a shelf over here. Well, you know, you, what's really interesting, I actually draw a line from Mecton to another company, uh, DreamPod 9. Mm -hmm. uh, because DreamPod 9 was an anime fan magazine. It was uh, Protoculture Addicts. Yeah, Protoculture Addicts. Right. And we actually licensed uh, DreamPod 9 for several years to do Mekton-based products. Yeah, Jovian Chronicles, yeah. Right. Which I love. It's also awesome. Um, so it's, it's interesting that – I, I think we have a pretty, you know, one of the, we have a, a Artels, Artelsorian is one of the big companies in the gaming history. It's in the, in the hobby. It's a, it's a big part of it. Uh, DreamPod 9 is not a small part of it. Oh, and no. I, I would say that, you know, because of Artel, uh, DreamPod 9 became, it, it maybe, maybe it's not the genesis, but it's certainly, you know, part of the inspiration for that company and, and the things that it's made since then. Because well, they mean, made the leap from the magazine to the, the game industry. Mm -hmm. Well, in the same way as, you know, we were inspired by Traveler and games of that ilk as well. Right, sure. You know, that's a wonderful thing about this industry is that everybody loves everybody else's stuff. At convention, people come up and they go, yeah, I, I just played your new thing, whatever it was, you know. And you're able to say, yeah, I played your new thing. It was really great. And everyone's busy just, you know, high-fiving and going, yeah, you did something awesome. <laughs> and I have never – it doesn't happen in a video game industry, and I kind of miss that. Well, it, it does in a little bit. I'll get to that in a minute. But um, 
I want to point out, I think the Land Striker was in fact the book that I was looking at in 1980, in, in the 80s. Road Striker. Uh, Road Striker. Yeah. Yeah. Road Striker yep. was, was the one I was looking at. It was, it was, mm-hmm. I remember that name. Now, uh, Mekton kind of started a system that you have created and that system is called the interlock system. And that actually right. spread out to multiple games. Mm-hmm. Um, but Mekton has a couple of successors. Uh, its first successor is Mekton Zeta. Mm-hmm. And we talked a little bit about this because of the, the artwork you have on the cover of that. Uh, I'm going to go a step further. Mekton Zeta is one of my favorite games. Uh, partially, I mean, it's, it's a great game, right? It's, it's a really cool game, but I think there's two things that just blew my mind about it as, as a game designer. And they have echoed, and I'll tell you about how they echoed. Uh, the first is there's this, the first like 10 pages of Mekton Zeta. Daryl, you got to pay attention to this, buddy. The first, the first 10 pages of Mekton Zeta is a movie. It's a trailer. I mean, every page is this shot of this alien invasion with giant robots and they're talking about we barely had a chance and then you turn the page but a chance was all we needed, we needed. Sense. and and it shows you like how we're fighting back against the invaders and it's just so goddamn brilliant because it gets you fired up as hell for this setting i believe the setting is called invasion terra invasion terra we did a book on it later on yeah which i own because <laughs> goddamn you sold the hell out of me on that uh, so you read the first, just the first 10 pages of Mekton Zeta always without fail gets me ready to kick ass in a giant robot. It's, I have to give Mike McDonald, who's one of Earl's staffers, a lot of credit for that. He had a lot to do with setting up the basic ideas in that. And we all kind of sat down and said, what would we do if we had a show? And so Mike did a lot of the work in there and I'm very proud of the stuff he did. It was excellent. However, interestingly enough, that had a great influence on the current project that we're, we're slowly but surely hammering out Mekton Zero, which does much of the same thing, but in a much more specific world setup oh. for Algol. Well, I'm, I'm excited to see what happens there, but I got to tell you, I got to create some of my own video, uh, my own uh, role playing games. I got to create uh, Rogue Trader. I got to create Deathwatch. Uh, I got to create, uh, you know, work on some other stuff. And every time we would sit down and talk about how we wanted to market these things, especially Rogue Trader, because it takes place in outer space. Right. Yeah. You, uh, you, you wrote Rogue Trader? Cool. Yeah. The, uh, the, the 2009 uh, mm-hmm. edition. Yes. I uh, will tell you, sir, that was excellent work. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. But it was inspired by Mekton Zeta's cinematic oh, opening. Really? Every, every time we talked about how we wanted to make this game you know, kick ass and appeal to people. I would whip out Mekton Zeta and I'd read those first 10 pages and I would say, okay, how can I translate that into the 40 K universe? So yeah, uh, Mekton Zeta is, is a huge influence on me. I just wanted you to know that. Wow. Well, thanks. Now, uh, interlock is not just Mekton though. It's teenagers from outer space. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Teenagers and cyberpunk. Well, let, let's talk about teenagers for just a second. So if you had to give someone a one-sentence description of teenagers from outer space, what would it be? The goofiest RPG you can play with your kids. <laughs> now, Daryl, I've always seen this as like the Yurisei Yatsura role-playing yes. game. I was going to say this is Lum, the role-playing game, is how yeah. I would sell it. It, yeah. it is It is Lum. It is rock and roll high school. It's uh, better off dead. Uh, I use not just stuff out of Japanese anime, although that was – part of the baseline for it but also from almost every teen comedy you know risky business you name it um it's designed to sort of do all of those at once the 
more Lummock aspects came from the fact that, yeah, I was a big UI fan, but also the original Teenagers campaign and all those characters in the original Teenagers book were actual characters played by friends of mine in the original campaign was much more Urusei Atsura based. So it kind of continued. It's it's I got to tell you, there's a guy here in Denver where I live and he and I have been friends for God, uh, 20 years at this point. And he, his favorite game of all time is Teenagers from Outer Space. He actually ran a online, uh, you know what muds and mushes are, Mike? Oh yeah. Yeah. He ran the official Teenagers from Outer Space mush. Was really? this guy? Okay, that he was just, him. Okay, yeah. I don't know if you. I mean, I, he's, mm-hmm. I assume you knew about it. Maybe you didn't. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, yeah, he was. He was the guy behind that because he loves that game to death. It is. It is just. It is one of. The, it's in my opinion. Okay, so in the eighties, you had eighties and nineties, right? You had some uh, some comedy games come out. Some games that are basically like we're going to sit around and just be irreverent and laugh a lot, and they're mostly meant to just be kind of. Uh, you know, not super serious drama, but like we're we're gonna just have, laugh and have a great time. And I'm talking about games like Tune, Tune and Paranoia, Bunnies, Bunnies and Burrows, Paranoia, yeah, and Beer and Pretzels, games. right? And and I and Crawdads, yes, uh, 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 Biker Chicks with Guns, yes, things like that. Um, I think the top of that list is Teenage Matter Space. The absolute best one of that, in my opinion, is Teenage Matter Space. And the reason why is because Tune. I, I just I felt like you were you were forcing the comedy. You know, it was just it was it didn't come organically. And Paranoia, you know, had more to say. It was actually, you know, they've actually done this in later editions of Paranoia, where it's got it's it's more than just the comedy, it's actually social commentary and things like right. that. Um but teenagers always, I thought, framed the context so well that you couldn't help but but laugh. You couldn't help but come up with some humorous, wacky situations. So I, I that's what I wanted to say about that. The entire idea of teenagers was to basically make a funny game where we made it easy for you to be funny. For example, the entire back end, the TV guide section of teenagers is just basically bad situation comedies that are funny just inherently. You right. Know, the, the classics, you know, your parents are suddenly like de-aged. Um, you have a pet that goes rogue, you know, whatever. They're all things that we've seen before. And so the touchstones are there and we know what's funny about that scene. So when we have to run it, we in turn know how to make it funny. That's, that's what I was missing from tune was like, how do I do this? Right. Like I can make the character and he's got all these wacky abilities, but how do I actually make a story? And teenagers would really do that for you. Uh, which I thought was great. Now, Daryl, have you ever seen Teenagers from Outer Space? This is one of the big, I want to go back and just smack my younger self <laughs> because <laughs> Teenagers from Outer Space, I saw the original cover art and the name and I thought it was instead of an homage to, uh, like anime, I, I was a big Rumiko Takahashi fan growing up as a teenager. Mm-hmm. And if I'd known that that's what it was about, I would have been all over this game. I thought it was, <laughs> I thought it was like fifties and sixties bug eyed alien monsters. Was like the homage was like, on that. Yeah. It was like happy days. Yeah. 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 No, 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 not the, like that. And then like the aliens land and it's like, okay, we have to run away from the fly creature this week. Uh, I thought uh, like the all drive in movies. I thought that's what it was. And I'm kicking myself. I want to go back in time and just smack myself and say, go get this game. You're going to like it. Well, just go to my past self and tell me that because I would have loved it's still this. In, if it's still in print, yes. we have copies and I'll send you one. Give me an address later and I'll send you a copy. 
get caught up. Okay, okay, you're you're on, Mike. You're on. You're on. Yeah, actually, I'll tell you a little side story about that. Teenagers actually ended up influencing me to one go back to paper games uh-huh. after ten, almost twelve years of doing digital games over at Microsoft and other places. And it also dragged my son into the business because he's now a designer in his own right. Um, and it basically was I'd done five, six years at Microsoft and was working on all these projects. And you're thinking, yeah, you know, I'm a game video game designer. You know, my kid should probably get some street cred for that somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. And instead, it's kind of like, yeah, yeah, dad goes to work, you know, big deal. And then one day he wanders in and he's about 10 and he's got a copy of Teenagers, and it's an edition I don't actually have anymore. And he says, Dad, did you have anything to do with this? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I wrote it. And he said, really? <laughs> As it turned out, his current girlfriend's dad was an old school gamer. And when they decided that they were going to game, he gave them a copy of it and said, here, this is a good start. Wow. So I ended up running a Teenagers in Outer Space game for my son and his friends. Awesome. And by the time I was done, it occurred to me that, yeah, you know, I really kind of enjoy doing this. And it's more fun than the digital stuff I'm doing right now, which is you know starting to feel a lot like work. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, you know, let's, uh, let's leave behind the teenagers for a minute. And let's talk about the future in terms of cyberpunk. Because cyberpunk was probably... You know, you can correct me on this one, Mike, but from, from an, from an outside perspective, it always seemed like this was your, your big game. This was the one that had the largest market penetration was oh, Cyberpunk. Yeah. Nine languages. Wow. Maybe nine, maybe 10. I'm and sure. part of, part of this was timing because it came out right, it came out right at the right time where everybody's like, Hey, you know, Blade Runner, that's a really cool movie. <laughs> well, I had to jump on because when Blade Runner had come out, the first couple of years, everybody looked at Blade Runner. And it was kind of a failure. People said, oh, it's kind of weird. I loved it. I said, this is an awesome movie. Somebody should do something with this. So by the time the cyberpunk concepts had already built up, I pretty much had a design and draft and was figuring out how I was going to go pitch it. So it was more a labor of love than anything else. And one of the nice things that came about is that because of our positioning, we got to know a lot of the cyberpunk authors directly, like Walter John Williams, for example. Right. And that meant that we were able to get their input as we were building it. For example, you know, Walter and some of his crew uh, were in a Mekton game. What? And <laughs> I did not know that. Okay. Did you know that Walter actually was a game designer? No. Walter John Williams designed Privateers and Gentlemen. No way. That's awesome. Way. <laughs> I made him autograph a copy of that instead of hardwired. <laughs> so, yeah, basically, one of the guys was uh, running that game. He also uh, worked on air superiority, a guy named uh, Rob Pruden. And Rob was running this Mekton game and had Walter in the Mekton game. And he said, well, you know, you're doing a cyberpunk thing. I've got a friend who's a cyberpunk author. You know, maybe we can run it and he can you know, give you input and all that. I went. Yeah. Okay. Sure. So basically I had cyberpunk writers giving me advice on, now this feels right. This feels wrong, whatever, as I was basically doing the final drafts of it. Very cool. Now, I think one of the best things about cyberpunk as a role playing game is it has very strong characters. There's uh, Johnny Silverhand. There's uh spider 
Uh, what's the last name? Spare, Spider Air Bill Murphy. Yeah, Spider Murphy. Uh, there's, there's these great characters that you can read and you'll be like, okay, I recognize that guy. And they have a voice and they have a, uh, a very strong identity, which, uh, really helps. I think that's one of the things that made cyberpunk, uh, so immersive. Now, Daryl, you, do you, are you familiar with cyberpunk? Uh, we talked about this in the cyberpunk episode, yes. which is about the so, genre. Mm-hmm. But not, uh, go ahead. Cyberpunk and the various versions of it are games that were, I've always been, a, I'm, I'm sorry, Mike, I've always been a Shadowrun guy. It was my first role playing game. I'm sorry. I'll forgive you. But, uh, <laughs> because Shadowrun was my first role playing game, I was very exposed to cyberpunk right off. So it's like, oh, hey, this is a cool idea. Yoink, put this in my Shadowrun game. Yoink, put this in my Shadowrun game. <laughs> right. Yoink, put this in my Shadowrun game. Well, we talked, so. we, we do have a whole episode about Cyberpunk and we have one about Shadowrun too. So, yeah. I mean, just go, right. go listen to those. But the short version, Mike, is I'm also a, a Shadowrun, uh, fanatic and we both were like, you know, Cyberpunk's great. The, the thing I think that I think drew us though to Shadowrun was it has this, uh, what I like to call the adventuring paradigm, but another way, uh, I think Robin Laws calls it the, the core activity, right? Which is Mr. Johnson hires you to do a job. It's, it's the context for building the character of who I am and what I'm doing and what we're supposed to, you know, how we're supposed to interact with the world. And I think cyberpunk had a great world and had a great, uh, it had, it had a lot of great material, but there was that same problem I kind of had with tune. I'm like, how now what do I do with it? Your problem with that is that in addition, Shadowrun was kind of the next step for people who started off playing something like D&D. Because right. when you get down to it, a large chunk of Shadowrun basically is a D&D game with the components of a D&D game, and it's simply just ported into a semi-cyberpunk universe. That's that's a good point. <laughs> and so it was it was kind of like an easy way to make the jump. And then later, if you knew more about the cyberpunk genre from a literary standpoint, you might shift over or pick things up from cyberpunk instead but we came from the literary viewpoint originally and it paid off for us because we essentially were able to get the real authors for the most part to be involved in that to write for us and you know talk to us about it and that was our niche you know and it's it's kind of funny is uh jordan and i are friends and we have had a running gag that we always tackle similar projects but from different angles right (laughs) And, you know, we, that's we a good keep, way to put it. We keep putting it, you know, back and forth that way. Cause there's Battletech and Mech Time. Mm-hmm. And there's Shadowrun and Cyberpunk. And usually the interesting thing is that uh, a friend, mutual friend of ours, um, many years ago, they, they had a Strata Libre in Italy, uh, Giovanni Gingelis said, you and Jordan always come up with the same idea, but you come up with it six months earlier. <laughs> <laughs> and we talked about that a little bit that you're like this, you're this visionary guy that's always been on the forefront of the newest cultural shift for many years you were and like i said cyberpunk was exactly the right game at the right time you know i think it hit the market early earlier than shadowrun in fact it did it it did by by actually almost a year and the thing that was kind of amusing again was in each case we kind of covered that ground and you know colonized it and as it usually turned out you know between us you know we and fasa would basically end up taking over whatever market (laughs) genre was there and we took one end of it and they took the other end. So uh, really quick, Cyberpunk 2020, which, of <laughs> course, we're going to talk about that later in this video game version. But uh, it's set in a place like the primary settings, uh, Night City. And we talked about these characters, Johnny Silverhand. It really I, – I, and I, I love the way that you say this. It's very literary because it does have a lot of those things from cyberpunk literature, um, like the rockers and the idea that the, the, the cultural movement is as important as the technological movement. 
Mm-hmm. And I love that. And I'm really excited to see, and again, we'll get into this later, but I'm really excited to see how this translates into the immersive world that CD Projekt Red can build. So, <laughs> Well, I knew we were in good hands when I went over there and I started talking to everybody. And they, like you, mentioned, you know, like, we have to put Johnny Silverhand in. Yes, and we have to have alts. And we have to have these characters. They knew the characters. And if you look at the video they did, the intro. Oh, God, yes. Like I've 10 times. Said something about 18 There's, times. So. <laughs> There's stuff scattered throughout that I just went, oh, oh, they got that. Oh, yeah. Arasaka. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you, all the way down to, you know, if you look at the guns, you'll find Militech. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cards of the guns and things. So one of the wonderful things was it's one of those bread on the water things. When we did the Polish edition, essentially someone came to us and said, we, we want to do a Polish cyberpunk. And I said, okay, that's behind the iron curtain, isn't it? How are you going to smuggle that in? And they said, don't worry about it. And as it turned out, they did a Polish edition and these guys grew up playing it. As one of them said to me, back then we had communism and we had cyberpunk. <laughs> and, and so they, you know, we've, we've had cyberpunk optioned, you know, I don't know how long, forever by different companies. And these guys got it, you know, and I look at it and I just go, yeah, they, they, they've got it. They have the capability. And when I went over, they were just starting they're about halfway through Witcher three. So I could see some of the things they were going to do with Witcher three. And I'm going, yeah, if these guys can translate what they want to do here to a cyberpunk game, this is going to be awesome. Yeah. And I don't want to get too crazy because we have a whole section set aside for video games. <laughs> so let me bring it back really quick to cyberpunk. Uh, you were talking about, well, I mentioned this actually, that there's a thing called the life path. And I think cyberpunk, the life path was the most important part. Yes. In my opinion. So could you tell the listeners, and I guess Daryl probably, uh, what is the life path and what is it in the interlock system? Okay, LifePath actually came about way the heck back in Mecton. And the reason it exists is that people don't automatically know how to play characters within a genre. People are always trying to approach them, and if they don't really know a lot about that genre, they do an XP of something that kind of might fit. But they're limited by what they don't know. For example, when we wrote Mecton, nobody knew any of the tropes for Japanese animation. When we wrote Cyberpunk, nobody knew any of the tropes for the Cyberpunk genre and so on. Oh, so it's a, so, it's a genre emulation tool. It is a genre emulation tool that helps you build a character in the same way as if you remember Hero Maker. Yep. Hero Maker allows you to build a character by basically pulling up drop down menus. And now there are thousands of Hero Maker doll makers out there. In the same way, when we did, um, not Life Path, there wasn't anything like that. The closest might have been some of the early traveler stuff, and that was primarily just your career. And I, I have to laugh now because Life Path is showing up even in the new D and D. You know, I, I kid Cody. I sometimes say, "Yeah, I wish I was getting like a dime for every time somebody used Life Path." <laughs> <laughs> well, it's in my opinion, uh, the only thing that was even close to it was was actually books uh, made by uh, Janelle Jacques, um, mm-hmm. which were the yep. uh, uh, central casting books, which were basically. Exactly. Taking Life Path and turning it into a 400 page book. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and, and here's a funny thing. You say you're familiar with the Rogue Trader role playing game. 
Uh, one of the first steps you do when you make a rogue trader in that game is you go with through what's called the origin path. Yeah, yes. <laughs> now, you I owe made, me money. I was just about well, to say, if you, uh, if you, you owe a dime me a every time, Ross, how much money now? Well, here's the thing. is I'll, I'll get into this in a second. The origin path is slightly different in that it has a visual connector. You know, basically, and, and you're making the same choices that you would on a life path, but you're actually drawing a physical line and seeing where those lines intersect with other characters, right? Right. And that design influenced uh, uh, some of the playtesters who were working on Smallville over at uh, Barter Weiss. And so, so the life path has, has grown. It is metastasized exactly. throughout the industry. <laughs> See, the, the thing of it is, is that I wish I had a dime for every time somebody used life path. But think about how cool it is yes. that hundreds of different designers are using something you came up with and find it useful. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, that's that's really cool. I mean, I look at that and go, yeah, you know, I, I dreamed this up, but man, somebody else thought that was cool enough to fit it into their game. Yeah, okay. You know, I mean, how could you object to that? That's a really cool thing. It's one of the best things about being a designer. <laughs> exactly. And then it's come around full circle in that the uh, Battletech tabletop role-playing game now has a version of have, has a type of life path system for its character creation now actually that it's always had that in the mech warrior <laughs> uh, not for the first and second edition not for first and second they had well, pri- they had priority okay. character generation like shutter well uh, all right i i I, yeah. I may be misremembering so fair enough yeah, the, the upshot of it is is yeah life path it has it's going um you're going to see a new one i'm doing in mecton zero which i think may also end up one day being a more of a standard and that's in um character generation as well but i'm going to leave that one as a kind of a secret let you guys see it later okay which now, it should be out fairly soon. There's there's one thing I want to talk about. Now, Daryl, I don't know. Do you, do you want to talk about Cyberpunk 2020 before I do? Because I have a big thing I want to get into. So uh, go ahead. One thing that I always thought that was great about it was that you could get the entire tone of the game just from the covers and the, even just the titles. Instead of, okay, Game Master's Guide, Referee's Guide, Storyteller's Guide. No, it's listen up, you primitive screwheads. <laughs> yes. I have to admit, Derek, Derek Quintinar gets the points for that one. He was one of our editors. And yeah, he was always saying that because he'd, he'd get questions from people about, well, how do I do this? And how do you do? And finally said, one day we're going to write a book on how to jam this thing that goes further than what we already have in the game. And he said, and we call listen up, you primitive screwheads. Being, of course, all big fans of Evil Dead, we said, yeah, I'll let's do that. Well, I love like the Chromebook. I mean, that's a fantastic way to talk about cyberware. Yep. Right. I love just that he's talking about titles. I do love that. Mm-hmm. Chromebooks. But, um, there's something I have got to talk about. If, if I made a list of some of my top 10 favorite role playing game books of all time. Okay. On that list would be a book called Cyber Generation. Cyber Gen. Oh my God. Did this book blow my goddamn mind? nanotechnology, transhumanism, taking the cyberpunk genre and saying, okay, all those things that we've been doing in Shadowrun, all the things you've been doing in, in, in Cyberpunk 2020, that's great. We're going to do something different. We're going to put you in the roles of these punk kids. We're talking teenagers with these nanotech powers, basically, because their bodies have been altered by a plague. And man, is it badass. I mean, it is capital B, capital A, badass. Cyber Generation is freaking fantastic. So I wanted to tell you that, Mike. I love it. Well, I'll, I'll tell you I one. Adore back. it. Oh, I'm glad you like it. I'll give you one back. 
let's say cyber generation isn't done yet. Oh, all right. Okay, there's more cyber generation to come. And um, about the only way to put it would be, well, you know, we're doing an awful lot of post, you know, apocalyptic teenagers. It's it's now in the culture. So we started a big chunk of that. So we're going to finish it. <laughs> so you're talking about like Maze Runners and uh, mm-hmm. uh, Hunger Game type stuff. Okay. Now, mm-hmm. now, really quick for the listener, Cyber Generation, you're not just playing a teenager and it's all angst, angst. Uh, no. What is – Mike, tell us what what is Cyber Generation when we're playing it. What's what are we doing? What's okay. core activity? The, the the deal is this: when you're a cyberpunk, you are basically somewhere in your twenties to thirties. You are a mature adult. You have a lot of your life at least worked out enough to kind of make your way in the world. But what I was interested in was that when you're a teenager, you're chafing against the fact you have no power. You have very little power to influence your life. What happens if suddenly you have a ridiculous amount of power to influence your life, but it puts you on the spot and you have to grow up really, really fast. And one of the fascinating parts for me about CyberGen is the idea that if you grew up in a world where it was cyberpunk 24-7 from the day you were born, that's not a big shock in your life anymore. You're used to going out and dodging the go-gangs. You're used to people having firefights outside your house. In fact, you consider yourself lucky to have a house. So by the time you reach teenagerhood and you're being able to actually move around and do things in the world as a beginning adult, you already know the ropes far better than probably your parents did because you grew up in all this. So CyberGen was about taking away all the major adult power structures and instead saying, okay, if I were 14 and I had superpowers, basically, in the context of the world I'm in, what would I do with them? You know, what would be important to me? My groups would be important to me. My friends would be important to me. I wouldn't be trying to take down a corporation. I don't really care about that. But what I do care about is, oh, I don't know, stealing the latest hoverboard from them. Yeah, and and I, I to me, in my opinion, it always struck me as, like, you were watching Akira, mm-hmm. you know, or you were watching Battle Angel. And getting a lot of your uh, your inspiration from those shows and applying that to cyberpunk in a way that we hadn't seen before. Because almost – everybody had, t- had seen Akira and everybody had seen Battle Angel. But they were applying them to cyberpunk in the way you're saying. Like I'm an adult. I have like tons of money. I'm a jet setter. I fly around the world and do these rock concerts or you know whatever, right? I'm a highly paid assassin, right? And and you, you flip that on, on its head. And that's what I loved about uh, Cyber Generation. Cyber Generation has a really strong fan following. And that's one reason we want to revisit it and do a lot more with it. Okay. So uh, I think we've just about talked about all the cyberpunk stuff. Uh, really quick, Daryl, the guys that are really important, the characters. Uh, we talked about Johnny Silverhand, but there's also Raish Bartmoss, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Raish, Raish Bartmoss. Uh, Morgan Blackhand, who's kind of like the Wolverine of the setting. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, those are the guys that I wanted to make sure I mentioned aside, alongside Johnny Silverhand and uh, Spider Murphy. Um, and of course, you, you can't do um, cyberpunk without talking about briefly uh, Netrunner, which was a very po- uh, a popular uh, collectible card game, which I think has now been adopted into the Android universe. Right. Which is another really cool cyberpunk setting. So mm-hmm. there you go. All right. Uh, now, moving on from cyberpunk, uh, we'll we'll touch on uh, Castle uh, Falkenstein. Castle Falkenstein. Yeah. yeah. 
Now, I never played this. I got to be honest with you, but I can. I know there's a lot of people who play it in LARPs. Like this is one of the first. Yeah. In my opinion, this is one of the early LARP games that really struck out on its own. Well, side, yeah, basically that and um, Vampire. Right. And this, was, of course, was riding off high on the steampunk uh, thing way before anybody even knew what steampunk was. Yeah, actually, we, we had a steampunk game that was, I think, about a year too early. <laughs> the impact of it. But, you know, basically it was a very seminal thing. Part of the problem was, you know, when I come up with these things, I am doing what I call reading the culture conf. I'm wandering around looking at what is going to happen, what wave is going to come up in the next two to three years. Right. So, you know, that's a tremendous amount of just, you know, cruising the net, research, going places, talking to people, listening and trawling the media. And the cyberpunk thing was already big in both Europe and Japan. And so, you know, the, the beginnings were there. The steampunk thing had totally broken out in Japan. Really? Yeah. It oh, had already yeah. be, it had already broken out. People were, um, well, for example, almost look at anything in Studio Ghibli. Yeah. Okay. Good point. Like Studios, uh, Castle in the Sky. Castle Lepida. Exactly. So it had already broken out. And, you know, what we were looking at was, well, you know, what could you do with this? And one of my favorite films is Prisoner of Zenda, uh, the second version. And one of the reasons was I like that kind of high romance. I like things being brighter and bigger sometimes, you know, and doing the daring do sort of st stuff. And I'd already gone to the dark side, so to speak, with cyberpunk. And I wanted to do a counteract to that. I wanted to do something that was about personal heroism and honor and belief. And to do that, I had to kind of create a Victorian age that had never really existed. I had to kind of create a Victorian age in the same way as, you know, in the fifties, I guess, you know, cowboy movies were not what the West really was, but rather what we thought it should be. And you know, what's interesting, uh, Daryl, just, just FYI, I guess when this game was released, just guess. Um, crap. If you'd asked me a few seconds ago, I could have told you because I had the Wikipedia page up, but I don't now. Just, just take a um, guess. 93. Really close, 94. Yep. So right during, you know, right as, uh, right as the world of darkness is just exploding, mm -hmm. you have this, this awesome, vibrant, colored steampunk game about heroism and daring do. Mike, how did you feel about that when you, when you had this, this big clash of these two genres, you know, going on in the, on the, the game stores? I, I didn't really think it was a clash. You know, it's it would be like saying, oh, we can only have one kind of book in the library. You know, we did one thing. They did another. And, you know, I guess the most fascinating one was a little while after we did Falkenstein. I remember Mark Reinhagen coming up and uh, caught up to us in uh, Chencon. And he said, this is really great. I'm going to have to steal some stuff from it. <laughs> <laughs> and I was cracking up on it because I said, well, I've already stolen some stuff for you. So, yeah, <laughs> I just I just think it's really interesting. You got dark horror. You got dark dystopian future. Those were like the, the dominant forces, uh, you know, because Dark Sun was out at the same time. Oh, I think, yeah. You know? So all of our, our gaming was kind of focused on, you know, gritty stuff. And then here comes Falcon, Falkenstein to to be not that to be a very different thing than that. I kind of think of Falkenstein as our guardians of the galaxy. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Uh, okay. Uh, 
like I said, I never actually played it, but I've always looked at it and said, this is something I want to try. But uh, I'll tell you about something I think that is near and dear to my heart. Anybody who listens to this show, Mike, knows that I am an enormous Champions fan. Mm-hmm. Just huge. And you were involved in the Champions New Millennium Project, which is where you took the Interlock system. You took uh, the creators of, uh, of Champions, uh, Steve Peterson and uh, Bruce Harlick. Uh, right? Is that who? And Ray Greer. And Ray Greer, yes. Uh, who, God, who also worked on GURPS. Uh, <laughs> you get these three guys together and you're like, okay, let's, let's take these two systems and, and put them together and see what we come up with. And well, there, there's more story to that. Okay, let's hear it. <laughs> okay. Well, for, for starters, Ray and Bruce and I were in, of all things, a cyber generation game. Awesome. Nightly. I wasn't running it. I was actually just part and parcel of it. And so we, you know, we all hung out anyway. And, you know, Ray's a really good friend. And Bruce was, for part of that time, working at Talsorian. So basically, we were developing a cleaner version of what we called Interlock at that point. And one day I was talking to, it wasn't Sandy. Maybe it was Sandy. Uh, anyway, I was talking to the heroes. And they were showing me this idea they had for a more stripped down, simpler to use version of the champion system. And we were looking it over and they said, well, you know, we've got this, we're doing this. And we realized that we both were developing something very similar. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we all hung out together anyway. So we started messing around with it. And finally, what they decided was, you know, why don't we put all this together and see if we could do a simplified version of Champions that was a little more driven towards character development and less towards mechanics. And so we aimed to simplify everything and we jointly wrote this, the, what's became the fusion system. So it wasn't as much that we came in and said, Hey, let's do this new champions. But literally we and the, and the heroes talking about it and kind of jointly coming up with this idea and saying, well, let's see if it'll work. No, I, I, yeah, I appreciate the, uh, I appreciate you letting you know, broadening us on that. Cause I, I didn't know the history on there. And that's, that's pretty cool. Now, uh, this is where we get Champions New Millennium from. It's also where we get games like Bubblegum Crisis. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, one of my favorites is uh, from a very short-lived game studio called Obsidian, uh, which is called yeah. Shards of the Stone, mm-hmm. uh, which was kind of badass. It's actually my my roommate, Sean Patrick Fannin, who created that. He wants to say hi to you, by the way, Mike. Hi, John. Uh, <laughs> so Fusion – now, here's the thing. Fusion got a, a had, had a bad – reputation when it came out it was kind of especially amongst champions fans there's a lot of people that were like what is this i don't understand and i don't think it ever really got uh the attention that it deserved in the in the marketplace i i think it, it kind of came out at at a weird time in the industry but I'd, I'd like to hear what are your thoughts on on fusion and and how it uh you know what happened with it in in the in the industry when it came out well the thing is is fusion ended up being used for a lot of other products um and basically didn't announce, hey, we're big fusion products. But you also have to remember this was about the same time that D20 as a system, which yes. was the huge dominant system, came out and overshadowed practically everything. That's true. I mean, you know, it fusion was sort of like, 98 and then the, the D20 bubble started two years later? No, it started a year later. 1999? Okay. Yeah, it came right over top of us. Okay. And so, you know, we were not out to set up the you know, the meta system. We were basically taking what we used, which was designed roughly from a lot of the elements we had in Dream Park, another game um, we did, licensed. And we were trying to carry some of that forward. As it turned out, 
one of the problems we discovered was gamers can be massively conservative about it. So yeah, people change who, example, bad, <laughs> change bad. So for example, people, people who looked at interlock went, Oh my God, they ruined interlock. And I said, no, we added two stats because this stat was broken and this stat over here was broken and everybody used attractiveness as a dump stat. So that's why we did it this way. And if you looked at it side by side, there wasn't really that much difference. You know, champions, yeah, there was a larger difference, but that was, again, very much driven by the fact that at that point, the, the heroes were feeling like, yeah, you know, we're not getting new people. We're getting the people who are, you know, already invested in this system. We'd like to try and get some other people. And my fa- my son has a nickname for um some of the people we hit who don't like to change, he calls them grognards. Yeah, that's the term, all right. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I believe it was um, Ray Greer who came up with the term uh, GCAP, grognard capture. You had to figure out a way to get the grognards to like change over to try the new thing because they just didn't like to change very much. And basically what we discovered is, yeah, there's a problem. You do have a very popular game because – People get used to how it's done. They build house rules. They do a lot of things that, you know, are kind of invested in it. And if you make any changes, you're going to have to win them over again. And some of them you will never win over. And that's sort of, you know, you can either stay there frozen forever or you can try new things. You know, and I think you made a really great point that the D20 just came along like a steamroller. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, for the listeners out there, I'm going to say this. Fusion is cool. It is not a bad system. It's a good system. And I really like, I mean, if, if you should check out Artesia, Adventures in the Known World. You should check yes. out Bubblegum Crisis. You should check out Dragon Ball Z, Sengoku, Victoriana, by the Victoriana. way. Yeah. There's a lot of great games. And the thing is, the system is good. I, I, I think it's, uh, there are certainly a lot of systems that we can talk about on our show that we have disappointments with or we are like, ah, eh, you know, I prefer something else. But fusion is one of those things that I would say, you know, if somebody said, hey, let's run fusion, I believe, let's do it. I'm I'm in. Well Shard, I'll tell you shards I'll of the stone. Th- let's go. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you a true thing though, is if you look at a lot of the new systems that have been coming out in the last five to ten years, you're trying to find a lot of systems that are driven essentially by fusions, skill, stat, and die roll mechanic. It's yeah. now become a pretty much industry standard without once again recognizing where it even came from. Well, I think it's to me it's fascinating in, in terms of our history of our, our gaming industry because it takes the strengths of two different systems and puts them together into a third, you know, it, it, it's a gestalt, if you will, of, oh, yeah. of the of the really strong parts of both uh, uh, champions and interlock, which it I was thought like, was fascinating. It was like Voltron, you know, yes. we joined up, you know, several <laughs> lions, and we had fusion. <laughs> All right, uh, so. Let's say we uh we what's your favorite fusion game? Let's just let me ask that question really quick. Mine? Yeah. Mm, interesting call there. I would probably say the new version of uh Mechton, but following that, I would have to say Dragon Ball Z. Nice. That, that- Dragon Ball Z because it we had in, in fact Dragon Ball Z was the first place we really field tested fusion because what we were looking at was in a champion's style environment, how could you build Dragon Ball characters? What scale would they end up being? It's over nine thousand. It's over nine thousand. Well, about <laughs> until it's over one million. 
Uh, I could tell you stories of how we had to calculate that stuff too. But <laughs> what we were most proud of was that Toriyama actually liked what we did and thought we had it nailed. So, you know, oh, nice. We, we kind of went, okay, you know, the man likes it. <laughs> yeah, was- we also learned he has a wicked sense of humor for puns. Oh, uh, yeah. Now, Daryl, was- did you ever play any Fusion? Uh, I did not, but I was kind of curious about the, uh, the Dragon Ball game and how that would have. Because that's one thing I've always thought would be make a great role playing game, but I could never wrap my hand around because of the way that he, that Toriyama plots his stories. I could never wrap my head around how you could translate that to a game and have anything resembling a balance to it because uh, of the, ans- the, the vast scales of power that goes on there. The answer to that is that power levels to quote Toriyama mean nothing. <laughs> I was going to say, I like the, um, Toriyama, Toriyama point blank said that once power levels mean nothing. Um, here's the deal. When everybody is 25 feet tall, completely covered with hair, I can throw lightning bolts from their hands. Then everybody is essentially first level. <laughs> so, and so what you have to understand with Dragon Ball is that the, the wicked truth is basically everybody Behind the Saiyans and, you know, lower, say, semi-Saiyans, super Saiyans, whatever, are window dressing. We can destroy the world and somebody will wish it back with the Dragon Balls exactly the way it was at the end of the adventure. And it will always be that way. There's always a massive reset button. So when we did Dragon Ball, what we did was we literally designed a game that had the largest number of dice ever necessary to be thrown. But then we did a shorthand that said, okay, well, you can use base 10 on this. <laughs> and, uh, okay. So, yeah, you throw over 9,000 dice, but you don't actually have to go throw 9,000 dice. You can throw nine and multiply. You know what I mean? Because the numbers proportionally don't matter as much. In Champions, which is what we were baseline against at the time when I was working on Dragon Ball, uh, in Champions, we realized rather rapidly that at the time, um, Krillin – as he was scaled at the end of the, of the uh, second saga, could hand Superman his butt in a sack mm-hmm. without working hard. Krillin is the strongest human. Yeah, and Krillin is, and Krillin can go there and you know smack Superman around and then destructive disc him, and the party's over. But you weren't going to be meeting Superman or anybody else lower. They were going to be standing there going, "Wait, leave this!" Man, that was. So you had to worry about the fact that the guy who could kick Superman's butt was at the bottom of the pig pile (laughs) and that everybody else was essentially 20 levels above him and getting higher. And after a while, it became Krillin, tell you what, go sneak around, find out where the androids are and try to stay out of trouble. Yeah, because when Cell can fart out characters that can whoop his ass. Yeah. All right, you guys are like way ahead of me on this Dragon Ball Z thing. Sorry, I, 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 I got really into Dragon Ball again recently <laughs> for two reasons. One was Dragon Ball, Dragon Ball Z abridged by uh, Team uh-huh. Four Star. Oh yes, and two is which is insane. Oh, I, I love, love it. That. It is. I as much as I because I kind of grew up with the original, but I think I like their story better. Their the actual story yes. structure because it, it started off as like another one of those parody abridged series where they're just making jokes. But no, the like story Hellsic. structure and the characters are amazing. Especially they can, they've got to the point where they can do live plays where it's Vegeta playing a video game and it feels like this is Vegeta playing a video game. Okay. No, they nailed but. it. <laughs> their version of Vegeta is one of my absolute favorite, and particularly the stuff between him and Bulma. I mm-hmm. never bought. The Bulma Vegeta ship, 
it was set up until I saw their version of yep. it. And then I went, okay, they nailed the entire bit where he's in the gravity chamber and she's giving him Drek. And they end the conversation with my rope 10 minutes. You know, you're going, <laughs> Yes, that was it. It was all set. <laughs> yep. Okay, I got it. Uh, let's let's bring it back here for a second because, uh, Mike, you've experienced an awful lot of, of of great success. You know, as a game designer, uh, you've had a couple stumbling blocks along the way too, right? And I wanted to ask you Absolutely. to kind of, I wanted to ask you about a couple of those. Uh, could you, in, you know, kind of give us the lowdown on uh, uh, some products that have had some some kind of mixed reviews? Let's talk about uh, Cyberpunk Third Edition for one. Third Edition. Ah, uh, Third Edition is a really good example of why you should not entirely listen to your fan base. We had done Cyberpunk, and we got a lot of people writing about the idea of we should do more transhumanism stuff. Cyberpunk was old hat and so forth like that. So I went down the transhuman route. The problem is, is that transhumanism by its very nature is more philosophical than it is action. And so as a result, it's very, very hard to put an action-driven, action-movie kind of sense around it. And I think that was one of the biggest problems with that. Another one was, to be honest, um, my intention span was being split between that and at the time, three different projects for Microsoft, which were having me leave the office at, oh, four in the morning and come back at nine. Right. The morning. So it was a split of attention and also wanting to go down this route that people said I should do. But I think in the end, it's that particular style of transhuman background is very, very tough to pull off. Um, Dave Ackerman, who's our production manager, has often said it would work better if we had never called it cyberpunk. I think that's a good, I, I think that's a pretty reasonable statement to make. Now, let me ask you a question. If you, if you could do it again, if you could go back in time and do the cyberpunk third edition, uh, would you do the artwork differently? Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> okay. Definitely. And, and can you, for the listeners, can you tell us why you would do the artwork differently? Oh, well, we tried an experiment. Um, I collect six scale action figures and they get very, very realistic. And I wanted to try something that looked a little more like it was pictures of the world as opposed to drawn images in the world. Right. I wanted it to have a very cinema verite kind of you're looking into the world and these are photographs of real people and so forth. And I knew that from Solo of Fortune, I knew that we weren't going to be able to get people that would look realistic in that. So I tried action figures where I could actually build the parts onto them, photo manipulate them, so forth. Didn't work. You know, and the thing about it is you're going to have successes and you're going to have things that just bloody don't work. And if you're going to go to the edge, if you're going to try new things, you have to take those risks. Yeah, I think absolutely you're you're totally correct on that. So yeah, there's there's things I would do differently, but you know, I wouldn't sit around and go, oh yeah, that didn't work. You know, well, yeah, it didn't work, you know, and I did the things that did work and actually a larger percentage of things that work. <laughs> and, you know, in a long run, if I can look at my, you know, overall legacy, such as it is, I would go, yeah, most of the ideas worked and they were just as risky and some didn't. And that's the price you pay for trying to do stuff that's out on the edge. Okay, that's a fair point. So let me ask you, uh, can you tell us about what's going on with the Mekton Zero? Mekton Zero. Uh, Mekton Zero is having some of the issues of technology. Uh, when we restarted everything at Talsorian after my long Microsoft stint, 
we have machines that were at that point 15 years old. Right. And we were using older technology and a lot of stuff was designed around that. Older software too, like Quark. Older software like Quark and so forth like that. So, you know, we went in and we, we converted things and started building it. Uh, to make a long story short, one of the big issues became that the software and the hardware couldn't keep up with the needs. We had some, you know, have some very, very ambitious and aggressive design elements in there. And one of the things we found was, well, I'll give you a case in point. We had a request from one of the fans in the Kickstarter who wanted us to use not an old-fashioned font, but something new and modern. So we tried a different font. We didn't find out for four months into it that the font was basically corrupted. And not just that, basically the design of the font was corrupted. And at some point when you started to edit it, it would crash entire files. And we didn't know when and we didn't know where. And it nailed all the backups because by this point we've been using that font for six, seven months. Right. So we literally several times have had to literally rebuild the book from ground zero. Ouch. All the secondary projects, we jumped back over to our standard fonts. And so oddly enough, the supplemental books and all that have been done for months, you know. But the core book, we are still finding things. I literally, about a week ago, I went in to change something. It crashed, burned a file. And by going carefully through, I found that there were two periods in the old font. Oh, my God. <laughs> the oh, my God. Periods. The worst part was they were hidden under a layer. Oh, no. So you couldn't see them. I had to strip the entire file. Oh, my God. And luckily, I found that out enough to where I could go back in and strip it out. So one of the things we've been doing is converting the entire thing over to InDesign for that specific book. And that's part of what's taking so much time. And in addition, we're also dealing with getting that and a bunch of new hardware. We have we've been getting new hardware, getting new software, and getting things basically ironed out so we can go into production and keep going into production. Awesome. And you're making some miniatures for this too, right? We're making miniatures. Um, one of the things, I, I can't get into it too far, but one of the plans we've decided to do, we had four, no, we've had Five different miniatures groups crash and burn on this. Oh my god! Yeah, just yeah, oh, where, Jesus. You know, where we got we got like, well, I got halfway through and like my cat died, something like that. Oh no! So we're now doing them digitally, and we're going to set it up. The plan is that not only will we be able to do them digitally, but because of that, we will be able to then do specialized versions for people on demand. That's the the long term right. plan. So, you know, if you had a mauler and you wanted to have your mauler have a Rasta sword, we could do that. Awesome. And I bet I bet this you've also taken a lot of lessons out of this for oh, future yeah. future Kickstarter plans. If you're you'd be like, let me tell you what not to do. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. My, my wife and business manager and my son said we should do a Kickstarter. And at the time I said, OK, you guys organize it and figure out. And tell me what we do. And at the time, I didn't know enough to know what we were getting into. And the silliest part was we bloody well didn't have to do it as a Kickstarter. We didn't need to we had the money. Oh my God. Yeah. So, that's that's an that's an amazing position to be in, by the way, for a role playing game company. No, we didn't we didn't need to do it. And so I'm going, okay, we you know, we got caught up in it. You know, wow, we got a new product. We'll do this thing. We'll do this thing. Do this thing. And you know, at the time the original book, which I had written most of already, was 
two color was five by eight format, you know, in a smaller format. Digest size. Yeah, digest size. And was designed to kind of be able to be carried in your pocket and, you know, the mecca were kind of designed along that line, all that. And all of a sudden we had this huge four color book and all these pieces. And I looked up one day and I went, what? <laughs> so yeah, um, wow. I learned several things. One, um, when you're going to do something like this, there's a point where you have to say, no, we're just not adding anything more, even though people want to throw more money at it. Two, um, in the end, what we ended up doing was for people who, you know, didn't want to wait till we got it hammered out and people have been remarkably supportive. We basically said, okay, anybody wants to cash out, we'll cash out. Right. You know, take your money back, you know, here, you know, cause we understand waiting, but I think it's going to be worth the wait. It's a beautiful book and, you know, we, we put pieces up for it and I like the project. It's got some really cool things. For example, you know, I usually do hit, miss, hit, miss sort of stuff in combat. I came up with an entire concept called katas where you basically have combination chain moves that replicate things you see in anime. Oh, that's badass. Well, so like the cla- a good example, the classic, you know, two guys across the field raise their beam sabers and run at each other, you know, rocket each other and they pass each other. And there's that flash of light and then one falls. Yeah. Yeah. Built that into moves like that. Well, when it comes out, we need to get you back on the show, and we'll talk all about it. We'll do oh, the yeah, whole thing. Talk about it. Okay. Well, I want to. We're, we're running short on time, so I want to kind of move forward on some other things here because sure. we promise we promise to talk to you about your video game side, and uh, let's do that because uh, there's also something else that I need to tell you. Uh, I have a list of my favorite video games of all time. Okay. Okay. And in that top twenty list uh, are two games that you probably are very familiar with: Met Commander Two. And Crimson Skies High Road to Revenge. Okay. I adore both of those games. <laughs> oh my God. I played Crimson Skies. It must have been like 20 different times. Uh, geez, it was the first game I owned on the Xbox. So what, can you tell us what you did on Crimson Skies just in a short? Actually, I worked on both Crimson Skies. I, that was the first project at Microsoft I had. Uh, wait, actually, no, there was Blood Wake. I, I, it was really funny. I ended up on Blood Wake, which was being done by a team in California. That was no more than about 10 miles from where I used to live. So I'm oh, in wow. Seattle, then flying back down to where I just moved from. <laughs> and I got put on the Crimson One project and did a fair amount of mission design and organization. I did a lot of more management stuff there, too, as well as mission design. And then Crimson Two, uh, that's, that's a really interestingly weird one. I did basic core design at first. And one of the issues was that the studio kind of blew up about mid, a lot of changes. People left. The guy who was running the studio split. And I'm, I'm sorry. I, can you help me out here? What's, what's Crimson 2 as opposed to High Road? Uh, Crimson High Road. High Road is 2? Yeah. Okay. I didn't I, know that. Yeah. That was, there's, there's original Crimson PC version. Ah, uh, that's right. Okay. So there was yeah. a PC. So you worked on both of those things. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's, I'm sorry. That's how you end up working on this, the second one. Uh, for specifically, I'm sorry. The one I was talking about is like one of my favorites of all time is the high road. So it should be really clear. Yeah. I, I shifted to another project, uh, towards the middle of that, which was a, a another studios project. And, um, a guy who picked up for me did an excellent job as well of bringing it in. But, um, Part of it was I also had shifted over to Matrix uh, Online at that point. Ah, now that's an interesting project. That was a dream project as well. So, yeah, basically the thing I discovered was that when you do a digital game, um, 
it's harder to get a sense of completion even when you get it done because there are just so many people and so many elements in it all happening at once. It, it's like this enormous hurly-burly brawl. And then at some point, everybody goes, oh, God, it's shipped. <laughs> That's right. I, yeah. yeah, I worked on uh, Darksiders 2. I know what you mean. Mm-hmm. So uh, the thing about Crimson Skies, just really quick, both for PC and uh, Xbox, I want to say this. Uh, the secret is to get the plane with the turret mm-hmm. because the computer controls the turret. And yep. he's, a, he's a hell of a better shot than you are. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. So, you know, actually one of the tactics in the PC game, for especially one of the tactics in the PC game would be to fly away from your opponent because yes. your, your, your computer controlled rear gunner would just take him out. <laughs> And also there's, there was a boundary line essentially that they had to turn around on before you turned around on. So you could get out to the edge that way. So that was, that was an interesting game from another standpoint, which is at the time, even Xbox wise, the frame rate levels were, I mean, we basically just didn't have enough frame rate to do a lot of the stuff we would have liked to have done. I remember at one point we added trucks to the bottom of one of the missions and everything slowed down to a crawl and we went, okay, no moving trucks. <laughs> that sucks. There's okay. a train. There's a train in the Xbox. Yeah, the train. Yep. The, the train. But if you notice the way it's set up, nothing else really moves on the streets. <laughs> everything, everything in frame rate went into getting that train so you could shoot it. It's it's a great it, listen for anybody who's out there who hasn't played it. High Road Revenge, fantastic game. But let's also talk about Mech Commander. Uh, actually, I adore all the Mech Commander games. Now, but you actually starred in too. You, did you work on it as well as star in it? No, I did not work on it. Uh, what happened was um, at Microsoft, I ended up being a lot of times the I was the scratch voice. You know, <laughs> I, somebody would go, "We need a villain." Mike, hey, you doing anything? <laughs> yes, I am your father. <laughs> oh, wow. So at some point they were doing Mech Commander. They said, we need a guy who's got a deep, world-weary voice, you know. So, Mike, you want to do this? And I'm like, yeah, okay, sure. You know, and I they gave me this big helmet and they had me, you know, do the whole scene, rocking back and forth and all that. And I just thought it was a hoot. But, you know. I, I did a lot of that sort of thing. It's, I well, always I mean, I, take steel. I always take steel in my crew when yep. I play Smack Command. And I, I am steel. And <laughs> what's, what's really funny is, in addition, that same year I did Crazy Taxi as well. No so, shit. Oh, my God. Okay. I didn't yeah, know that. It was just like, they, like, we need a deep voice. Mike, you do anything? My, my favorite deep voice one was um, when we were doing MXO, Mexico Online. Uh, they needed a scratch voice. And basically, they couldn't get Lawrence Fishburne at the time, so I got to do Morpheus. No way. Yes, I got I scratched voice Morpheus, and Wachowski's actually said, you know, when they they heard it, they said, "Yeah, we kind of really like your voice, but unfortunately, we got to use him, you know, because it's contract." <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, it's it's I can understand that, but damn, Daryl, yeah. did, you, did you ever play Mech Commander? <laughs> I played him a couple of times, but I don't remember a lot about him other than getting really, really frustrated because I'm. I've always been a big assault mech guy and I, I don't know what it was. I couldn't get those at the beginning. So I was annoyed. <laughs> yeah, and- on it. Yeah, man, I haven't thought about steel in I don't know how long. So, okay. We got to know, this is just, if you could take a couple of minutes, what can you tell us about the matrix online? Cause it, it, it kind of just vanished. Uh, I can't tell you a whole lot. Um, basically, um, I split, went on to teach, I think then. And what happened was they changed studios and 
we changed studios in MXO like at least three times that I remember. Last time was about when I was leaving was they went over to Universal, no, Warner Brothers. They went over to Warner Brothers. And I think that probably had a lot to, you know, the problems they have when you change studios, what studios want, where they're headed changes a lot and you have to do a lot of reset. So, yeah, um, in the final analysis, I wasn't there for the launch. I, I did a lot of freelance stuff for them in between when I split and went on to the next project I was on. So I was still doing MXO stuff while I was doing um, one of the other projects I was working on at that time. Okay. So, yeah, I can't give you a whole lot on that. Yeah, it was. It ran for four years. Yeah. Came out in 20, 2005. Right. Uh, I never played it. I got to be honest with you. <laughs> so, this was when uh, I was uh, – I was still in recovery from Ultima Online, so I was avoiding any yeah. MMOs like the Plague. But I had friends who played Matrix Online, and they really liked it when it first came out. And then there was something that happened that like was a major change. Like they complained about nerf this class, nerf that, nerf this, and blah blah. blah. It's it's ruined now. I don't want to play anymore. But they had some really cool sub organizations. Like they had E Plurbius Neo, which I thought was mm-hmm. cool. And had the Cypherites, which I was like, oh, this is cool. They're, they're doing like factions based on characters. And that sounds like something I could see happening in the Matrix, you know? Yeah, I think, I think over time it began to find its own space again. But, you know, I actually had split before launch on that one. And, you know, primarily I was there originally to be part of the original launch crew. And I, I had another project which was uh, just about as interesting and to be honest, paid a bit more money than I went for. Now, you got to work with uh, Paul Chadwick on that one, didn't yeah. you? Yeah, yeah. He's a great guy. Well, yeah, he's an amazing writer. Uh, and a really Darryl, nice guy. Daryl, do you know who uh, Paul Chadwick is? Unfortunately, no. I, I'm horrible okay, so, with names. Uh, he, he wrote a bunch of Dazzler comics back in the 80s. Uh, he also wrote Concrete, which is what he's known for. Concrete is the big one, yeah. Yeah. Uh, some Star Wars comics, Deadpool, Why the Last Man, uh, uh, okay. stuff like okay. that. He's a, he's a pretty uh, concrete is where I know him from as, as mm-hmm. well. But, um, and he's, a, he's an artist too. He does, he's like yeah. a Renaissance man. So <laughs> I, I probably know him from why the last man then. Why? Why not? That's what I always say. Anyway, uh, moving on. <laughs> uh, so let's take, let, now we, we're going to give you a big chunk of time here. Uh, we want you to tell us about this thing that we're just both Daryl and I are just gaga over. I believe the word you're looking for is drooling and anticipation. Cyberpunk 2077. Oh, geez. You know that old line about, you know, if I told you I'd have to kill you? <laughs> uh, I'm going to preface this by saying that uh, the rule at CDPR and at Tal is that, you know, much like Fight Club, you don't even mention 2077. What I can tell you is some run up to it. We'll sure. give you some ideas. Whatever, whatever you feel like you can share with us is, is awesome. We're just, we're both big, huge fans. We can't wait for it. And I, I gotta tell you, I think CD Projekt Red is the perfect studio. They are the perfect studio. I mean, and the thing was, is when we first, you know, encountered them, you know, I knew because I had done MXO that as well as we had done a, uh, cyberpunk, uh, version of an MMO, uh, with a team in Singapore, like about 10 years earlier. Um, I knew it was going to be a really tough sled, but what I saw was some of their capabilities when they were working on on uh, Witcher Three, and I was impressed. I mean, you know, I I don't think they knew that I had worked in digital, and I showed up and you know was looking at it from the standpoint of what I would do if I were looking at a you know at a studio outside of Microsoft. 
So basically what they have going for them is one, a really good knowledge of the material. You know, they, they, I believe forgot about the material. They have a love of the material and they have capability and they really care about the people who use their product. Um, a lot of what we found is that they have much the same kind of um, love of the people who play our stuff and the desire to create something that we all would like that is kind of a core value that we have over here as well. What I know is that – or what I can talk about is the graphic stuff I've seen is freaking awesome and I wish I could show it to you. There are some things that they've shown me, run-throughs that are just like, wow, you took that right out of my head. That's amazing. <laughs> and – it's going to be spectacular from everything I've seen. Well, I can I, I can only hope that if it's if it's as amazing as as their Witcher games, that we will also eventually have a Cyber Generation RPG because that would just be awesome. No comment. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Okay, so we've seen the trailer, right? And we just everybody's yeah. drooling over the trailer. Uh, this has got to be amazing for you because you're you've got two worlds. You've got your digital world and your tabletop world, and they're coming together. Uh, in oh, a yeah. pretty amazing way right now. Uh, so let me ask you this: like, if you know, looking back over your digital career, what's what's the video game you're most proud of? Your favorite I child? <laughs> I, I couldn't really say. Okay, I, I really couldn't. Each one was so different, and like I said, we're missing things. Uh, you know, the flight sims and stuff like that as well. Um, I couldn't say. Okay, part of it is like I said, it is harder to have that personal my child kind of feeling about a digital game. Right. Because it is such a group effort, you know, and you're, you're having to share mind space with, you know, upwards of, you know, 200 people at the same time. And all you're doing, if you're, your lead is you're basically kind of figuring out, well, we're going to go here. And even then, a lot of times people say, well, what if we went here? And you have to figure out, yeah, it's not a bad idea. Okay. Yeah. Let's go there. <laughs> so it makes it really hard. You know, when you are doing a paper game, it is much easier because like writing a novel, yeah, it is something that comes from inside your head and goes directly to the paper. And then, you know, people contribute, add stuff, edit it. But the conception is much more personal. So you can have that stronger attachment to it. Now, with CD Projekt Red and Cyberpunk 2077, are you how involved are you in this? Have they I assume that they consult you and they bring you. You talked about going out and looking at it and stuff. Do they do they run like here's here's our. Uh, a story idea. Here's our outline for a campaign. Oh yeah. Well, okay. they, they run stuff by me on that, but oh, hell, when we go out there, we'll sit there, you know, for days and story conferences with them, you know, going, well, what if we did this? How about if we did, we, I'm really flashed by how much they've involved us, you know, and it's not like, well, we have to, you know, satisfy the licensee or whatever. They are actively interested in what we think and do. And we are, you know, I'm, I have worked on projects, you know, in digital to this extent before. And so it's really pretty amazing the amount of involvement that we have with them. Okay. Now, the, like, this, the scope, these guys are like CD Projekt Red. They're well known for the Witcher games, which are just these huge open world mm -hmm. games where you can – you do, I think, you know, what is it, 100 hours worth of side quests or something like that in Witcher Yeah, easily. Is that are they taking a similar approach? I don't know if you can tell us this or not, but it, are they taking kind of a similar immersive, really in-depth approach to Cyberpunk, where we're going to find something around every corner? I'll say as much as Martin Irinsky would say, which is bigger and more. Wow, <laughs> uh, 
hearts and you can't give me a hard time. You said that in an interview too. So, you know, what, when we talked about influences earlier, we talked about the influences on things like Mechton. Uh, with your influences on Cyberpunk 2020 and, of course, now 2077, would you okay, – can you can you tell us like what are your probably top three, uh, you know, other than literary because we've gone over some of the stuff you've talked about literary-wise. Um, other than literary and, and, and I guess we've also said Blade Runner. So apart from those, what are your, your influences on, uh, on the Cyberpunk 20XX setting? Mm, to be honest, a lot of it's coming out of 2020 itself right now. <laughs> yeah, what we, what we, four years to, away. <laughs> well, what's happening? Yeah, four years away. Back when I thought the idea that, you know, cyberware would be, you know, usable. <laughs> and now we have people running around like Oscar Pistorius with, you know, cyber limbs. Yeah. So who knows? Um, at that point, I really can't tell you much more about that, but I know that one of the things we did do was to look at the 2020 worldview and we wanted to extend the timeline out further so we'd have more room to try new things that people wouldn't expect. So theoretically, you will see some outcomes of characters in 2020 and you're going to see kind of some extrapolations of things, but it's going to feel very, very cyberpunk because they've been massively interested in keeping that feel and that look and the characters around. Well, that's awesome. I'm, I'm kind of hoping you know, I, I, like you, I'm an anime fan. And like you, I'm what we call the, the kids call us these days old taku, FYI. <laughs> old uh, taku, yes. yeah. But I, uh, for me, like the thing I'm kind of hoping to see in Cyberpunk 2077, I'm really hoping to see some of that world that was shown to us in like AD police. Mm-hmm. You know, the man that bites his tongue and the stuff like that, like that, that whole Robocop, bl- uh, Blade Runner mashup. With, uh, uh, you know, shades of iRobot thrown in there. I really kind of want to see that. To me, that's, I think, what I'm, I'm really hoping to get a piece of. Well, well, some of those, some of those elements are directly in Cyberpunk 2020. Right. That's what, that's what I figured, probably. I mean, BGC, for example, you know, we effectively took Bubblegum Crisis and there were a lot of huge holes in what that background was. Yes. And, (laughs) (laughs) and basically it was kind of an amusing story. It was, uh, Benjamin Wright did a lot of the kind of, extended world creation in that and they liked it so much they actually incorporated elements of it into the next bubblegum crisis the 2040 yeah okay so they actually incorporated elements into it but we've been through 2020 exploring some of those things you know starting with uh ghost in the shell and apple seed and so forth like that all along right so those elements, you know, have to come forward in Apple, some respects. Anyway. Appleseed was the second thing I was going to jump into as a possible influence. So, yeah. Yeah. Appleseed was an influence on, on us, particularly as cyberpunk, you know, developed over the years. Okay. So we're, we're really close to the end of the show here. I want to just throw out one last thing for the, uh, the listeners as far as your history and, and accomplishments. Uh, as president of Gamma, uh, you were involved in a landmark moment, which was the arbitration between Palladium Books and Wizards of the Coast in a lawsuit about a book called The Primal Order. Oh, yeah. Wow. And this this helped set the stage for a bunch of things that came later, not the least of which is Magic the Gathering. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, hmm. Well, how much can I legally tell? That's an interesting question. <laughs> that's, um, a, that's a good point. Yeah. I, we, I we are not a lawyer. None of us are lawyers. None of us are lawyers. <laughs> but I hire a lot of them, believe me. <laughs> I've seen more lawyers the last three years than I could possibly <laughs> imagine. And I'll leave it at that. Uh, the upshot is that um, 
a large part of that, I think, was a misunderstanding, and both parties were friends of mine. So I don't think that the, at that point, Wizards of the Coast, Guardians of Water guys, really understood how Kevin cared about his products and so forth in their names. And Kevin is a fighter, and he protects his stuff. You know, you grow up in Detroit, you got to. And at the same time, he's a pretty straightforward guy. And I knew him from, you know, way back. And all I really did was to basically sit down and say to both sides, look, what do you want? What do you need to, you know, to have this work out? And nobody had stopped really at that point to talk to Kevin and find out where he really was on it. And, you know, I was able to do that. And in the end, you know, he's not a vengeful dude. He's going to protect his stuff, but he's pretty straightforward, straight ahead guy. So, you know, we talked and I was able to go back then to the Watsi guys and say, hey, this is what we need to do to make everybody happy. And they were happy to do that. Everybody worked something out. And, you know, my job as president of Gamma was to make sure that happened. The last thing we need in a business this small where everybody is effectively friends, neighbors, sometimes partners, because this is a really small industry in a lot of ways. It's tiny. Yeah, it's tiny. You know. You don't need to have a fight in a family. You need to work it out. Absolutely. Uh, so we're actually at the final bit here. So I'm just going to quickly ask Daryl. Uh, Daryl, th- this has been a great conversation. It's one of the first times we just talked about like a body of work. Yep. <laughs> really. Uh, so I got to ask you, um, what do you think? What are your, what, I guess, what are your final thoughts on uh, Mike Pondsmith and Artal and all the great stuff that's going on there? Please tell me more stuff about Cyberpunk 2077. I'll let you kill me afterwards <laughs> if you have to. I can't. <laughs> I can't. Okay. I'd like to point out that all the guys I know in Poland are very, very tall, quiet, serious guys. No, you can with a consensus of humor. S- s- and send the KGB guys after me. I, I, I will die happy at least. Knowing <laughs> something. So, so. What, you're, what you're saying is you're, you're really excited. Curiosity about may kill this cat. I. It will kill you. <laughs> Anything no, else you I want to say, Daryl? No, seriously. I can't tell you anymore. Seriously. <laughs> no, but uh, more seriously, yeah, it, Mike's work has spanned an awful lot of gaming and has been incredibly influential on pretty much every single game or game concept I'm really into. So it's been like an I'm absolute really honor to have you on the show. Well, thank you. I feel like I'm really ancient, but... Uh... I'll get over that soon. <laughs> well, you know, speaking of longevity, just really quick, it, it is important to point out that that Mike's been making games or been involved with games since Star Wars came out. Where it's, you know, 1977, you know, he, he started doing stuff in 80, like, you know, right after. Uh, so we're talking about, you know, as long as Star Wars has been part of culture, so is Mike's, Mike, I've been, Mike Ponsman. I've been trying to, to avoid game. it, but you kind of pushed me into the corner. You have been involved in tabletop role-playing games as long as I have been alive. I was born in 1980. Yeah, see, my son can say the same thing. (laughs) And the scary part is now he's a game designer. Yep, that's awesome. Yeah, he's currently working. He's currently working on the Witcher RPG. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, he's doing the tabletop game, and it wasn't my idea; it was his. That's badass. He came to me and said, "Hey, I'm going to go talk to the Witcher guys and, and pitch the idea at them." And sure enough, he walked in, started talking to them, and they said. Yeah, that sounds really good. <laughs> you know, said, it's, okay, so it's, it's now, what you can accomplish if you just ask for it sometimes. <laughs> well, his design, his design is excellent. I'm really, really impressed. Cool. He must have gone somewhere to learn how to be a game designer. So he didn't get it from me. <laughs> well, we'll have to have him on the show at some point when that comes out too. Yeah, I think he'll enjoy him. He's quite a character. Okay. So, uh, 
my final thoughts are basically the same as, as Daryl's. Uh, you know, you guys heard it from the very beginning. Mike Pondsmith, one of my favorite game designers of all time. Uh, we met very I briefly. Say that. We met very briefly at a, at a Gen Con a few years ago, but I don't know if you remember me. Uh, but it's okay. Uh, because. You're going to be at Gen Con this year? No, I will not actually. I, Rats, I'm kind of, year, kind of avoiding it. Uh, but honestly, but, um, I, I will remain one of the biggest fans of your work, uh, probably until I die. So. So I, there's not much else to say about that. Mike, can you tell us and the listeners if they want to find out more about you and what your latest thing is and maybe if there's any conventions you're going to be at coming up that they could find you, uh, what those would be? Well, I have been invited to do a guest shot at this year's Gen Con. Awesome. So if they want to come to Gen Con and you know ask me questions and show me their cyberpunk character, I'll be there. <laughs> okay, Gen Con, anything else coming up? Uh, right now I am so insanely busy and I'm probably going to be leaving Gen Con, turning around and going back to Poland for a while. So, uh, my schedule is kind of full and mostly places where people aren't going to be able to follow me. Okay. And if they want to know more about you, they should go look at, um, at this point, we're going to be doing a little more active stuff on the Artel Sorian, uh, games site. And so they may want to check there. Um, beyond that, Kind of everything I do is out there and people can see it. It's all in the work. You do you do have a fairly extensive Wikipedia page. <laughs> the terrifying part is I did not write that Wikipedia page. Somebody else wrote it. I think that's the rule. I think somebody else has yep. to write it. Yeah, I, I came back and said, I did that. What? <laughs> now, it's funny. I I, meet this guy. What's funny is I've heard people say, it's like, I wanted to go in and fix something. When I went to fix it, they told me that I wasn't a good source on me. <laughs> yes, I have had that happen. <laughs> Uh, and you know, one thing we didn't mention are all the little things you did on, uh, stuff like Forgot Realms, Oriental Adventures, uh, Dungeons oh, yeah. Dragons. Buck Rogers. Buck Rogers 25C. Yeah. All kinds of stuff that, uh, that you, you, you touched in, in various ways over the years. So, um, I, I did have one further thing before we close out. One thing is I'm going to kick myself because I've forgotten up to this point. There were rumors when the first trailer came out for Cyberpunk 2077 that this also meant there was going to be a new edition of the tabletop Cyberpunk game. Can you comment at this point in time on anything about that? Well, there was actually going to be a new edition that was going to update a few things. For example, cell phones are no longer going to be the size of bricks. <laughs> um, I thought that was probably a good idea. I would have to say we're going to hold on that, but the odds are we definitely will be doing a 2077 edition as well to bring everybody up to speed. And beyond that, um, stay tuned. Awesome. Hey, just FYI, I am for hire. So <laughs> Okay. <laughs> well, when I send you back all the books that, you know, we need to send you like teenagers and so forth, <laughs> you can have to send me an address and we'll talk some more. All right. All right. Well, hey, it's been fantastic having you on the show and on behalf – on behalf of Daryl and myself, we want to say uh, extend our gratitude to you for uh, for joining us and spending two hours talking about your work. Okay, and thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh man, anytime. So uh, thanks a lot. And Daryl, you want to you want to take us out with our listeners? Until next time, may all your hits be crits. <laughs> <laughs>